This episode of Positive Space is brought to you by Chartpack, parent company of 14 art supply brands including Grumbacher, Molotow Markers, Higgins, and Cullinor Drawing Supplies. Pens, pencils, paints, and paper? Chartpack has it. Check out Chartpack and their brands at chartpack.net. Welcome to Positive Space, Conversations and Art Foundations, a production of Foundations in Art, Theory, and Education, also known as FATE. Positive Space is a podcast providing opportunities for those passionate about art foundations to discuss and promote excellence in the development and teaching of college-level foundations in art studio and art history classes. Hey there, welcome to Positive Space. This is Valerie Hanks. Today joining me in real life here in Lincoln, Nebraska is Michael Arrigo, professor at Bowling Green State University and coordinator of graduate studies. Welcome, Michael. Hey. How are you, Valerie? I'm doing, I'm doing well. Thanks. Thanks. Well, I thought I would kind of start with, you know, I know you've got your MFA and your BFA from Ohio State Mm -hmm. studying painting and drawing. And it seems like you teach all kinds of things now. Um, video, interactive media, installation. How did that happen for you? You know, it was, uh, I, I came from physics. I was a physics major till I was a junior in, in college and, uh, took a, a humanities course because uh, I had to. I took art for non-art majors and I absolutely got hooked. And so I was coming, I kind of came into art sort of via the back door anyway, mm. but I was really interested in the ways in which we create meaning and the ways in which meaning creates uh, the world. And I think that's why I eventually sort of moved over. Anyway, uh, at the time I was really interested in video, but video was very expensive. Mm. Uh, In fact, uh, for the videos that I was doing at the time, I had to volunteer at the local public television station just to get access to the uh, equipment because the equipment was so pricey at the time. So I did, I worked with uh, Susan Dallas one and uh, I, at Ohio State uh, doing performance and doing some video, but because I was really interested in the ways in which um, ways in which the image figures into the ways in which we think, uh, painting eventually became a much less expensive way <laughs> of dealing with uh, with imagery. And so uh, I really got into uh, got into painting. I got I got my degrees in painting, but after graduation and I'm teaching, and as the price and the availability of video technology became um, more of a reality. I got back into doing more and more and more of it until finally I just wasn't painting anymore and I was doing mm-hmm. all sort of intermediate stuff. And I've noticed in doing a little bit of research about you that, that you are interested in tinkering. I am. And you're a tinkerer, which I appreciate that word. Can, can you talk about how that is be- or how that has become something that you're excited about in your own practice? Yeah, sure. I, th- I think the the main impetus for, for that was, uh, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago. I'm a little slow on the uptake. So um, <laughs> I suddenly realized that I wasn't making things. Mm-hmm. You know, it took me a long time to realize what I was really making were experiences. Mm-hmm. And even when I was painting. And, and I think once I made that realization that I wasn't making things, that I was making experiences, I began to realize that 
a big part of what painters, anyway, are trained to do, at least certain kinds of painters, is, uh, is to hide our tracks, to create a surface that doesn't necessarily give us access to how that thing was made. So mm-hmm. if you think about sort of uh, naturalistic painting, mm-hmm. uh, oftentimes is, uh, is structured so that you don't see the construction, so that you don't see what's happening in that process. And um, so... I really focus on the process. And so tinkering is something that I think we all do, more or less, in the studio. Uh, we play around, uh, we make interesting discoveries, and we bring those discoveries out of the studio when they seem uh, worth paying attention to. And so what I really try to do is, is actually sort of hold on to that tinker's aesthetic, you know, that showing people, not, not trying to uh, wow them with substance, but trying to sort of seduce them uh, with curiosity uh, mm-hmm. so that they see, you know, this is the thing that I'm curious about. And you can see me playing with it, and maybe why don't you try playing with it? You know, so I think it's, a, it's, a, it's a, an aesthetic, like an experimental aesthetic or a tinker's aesthetic that I'm really interested in, that sort of provisional, uh, this isn't figured out, this isn't uh, a done deal, this isn't something for, you know, for passive consumption. Uh, you're seeing something that's sort of in process, and I'd really like for you to maybe join into that spirit of experimentation with me. That's great, and I, I think it's it's exciting to see something that isn't slick and perfect in, in the way that it's presented, because I think there's such a tendency to kind of have that that look about something, that it's it's really polished or that it's hiding all of the process and all of the kind of behind-the-scenes stuff. Do you find that that's something that you bring into the classroom in terms of this idea of tinkering? Oh, yeah. In fact, my, the, the curriculum that I we're sort of developing and that we're using is sort of built all around that. I think failure has been a big thing in teaching, especially first-year teaching, over the last maybe 10 years or so. I think more people sort of use that, that terminology as sort of you know, failing forward. And, uh, and I think that it's really helpful and really useful. So what we're trying to do maybe is actually give them, not just say it's sort of it's okay to, you know, it's one thing to make a safe space and to encourage and to, and, and to tell students to fail forward. However, they don't really know how to feel forward. Mm -hmm. And so what we've been trying to do is figure out, you know, how do you cultivate the skills that it takes to fail forward? That is, uh, that's one of the things we've been really working on. Um, So our AMP, uh, our methods and practices, is really about methodology. Mm -hmm. And a big part of that is trying to teach students not to think with process, that their process is, you know, you don't solve the problem and then uh, uh, execute your solution. You're trying to solve the problem before you know anything about the problem. Mm -hmm. And so what we're trying to do is train them to uh, plan for, uh, plan to find the solution, not to answer the problem. So that you don't have to know what the outcome is going to be. Mm -hmm. Uh, You just simply have to come up with a methodology that pretty much guarantees you're going to have a really good outcome without knowing what that outcome is going to be. That's a very different process um, and involves iteration and failure and a lot of other things built into it. So we're really trying to give them the tools to help them to fail forward, um, to help them to uh, explore broadly um, an idea before they start to settle into what that solution is going to be. How do you how do you get them to really embrace this process of tinkering and uh, exploring without really knowing where things are going to end up end up? 
First of all, you, part of it is you keep them, at least initially, for the first couple, for the first assignment, we kind of keep them blind. In other words, they want to see the end, mm. and so you don't allow them to see the end. So uh, we actually have projects where it's purposeful that it's very difficult to see what the end result is going to be mm. in the earlier stages, mm -hmm. and sort of getting them to uh, become comfortable with that, with not knowing. More than anything else, that's the, probably the biggest hurdle for most students. I think that they, you know, our students tend to be hardworking and they tend to be really conscientious, but they also want to do well. Yes. And yes. for them, doing well means I need I need to have control. Mm -hmm. And a big part of what we do as artists is we have to relinquish control at certain parts of the process. Mm -hmm. And so we lay out the parts of the process. And you can do this sort of in a stepwise fashion in your own sort of curricular design so that you're giving and give very direct kinds of, of uh, advice to students. So, for example, um, it's not uncommon to say, you know, to have a step in there where it's like, you know, ideation. And so we're going to go home and I want you to, to you know, fill up three sketchbook pages uh, and bring those back and we'll talk about those, you know, as, as a form. Or go home and brainstorm. Mm -hmm. Well, they don't know how to brainstorm. Right. And they don't know what to draw. Mm -hmm. So those aren't particularly helpful. Mm -hmm. They sound like they're helpful, sure. but they're not particularly helpful. And so what you need to do is you have a, either need to give them very direct, here are the things that you need to look at. Here are the things that you should be drawing. Um, uh, here's what I want you to do to manipulate that drawing. Early on, you need to give them options because the students need to see those because they've never been exposed to them before. But after you've sort of accumulated a certain amount of those that you've given to them in the earlier uh, in the earlier projects, now they've got these things that they can fall back on mm -hmm. to utilize. Mm -hmm. And so when you say, "I want you to use," uh, uh, I want you to use the, the, the combination drawing technique that we used before where it's just something where I have them do a, do a sketch on transparent paper, they do another sketch on transparent paper, they lay them over the top of each other, and then they create new drawings. It's a way of getting out of their own sort of habits in terms of what it is they're drawing mm -hmm. uh, and to make things that are more sophisticated very quickly. So, again, it's a kind of dumb idea, mm. but it helps them to generate things that they wouldn't otherwise be able to generate. So just teaching them those little kinds of techniques that help them to, you know, how do I successfully brainstorm? How do I successfully um, uh, uh, sketch uh, in ways that are going to move the project forward? Mm. Yeah, because you're also showing them how to research, you know, and beyond just I'm going to Google this word. You know, because they don't really know how to, they don't know what to even put in a search engine. Absolutely. My uh, my colleague, uh, Leanne Payapil, who's now sort of running the program, she is huge on research. And I am too. I think that she tends to really foreground this idea of research and sort of uh, a very sort of intellectual approach, which is really great. I tend to soft pedal a little bit more, but mm. essentially we're doing the same thing. I think that sometimes uh, the notion, especially with our students, I think the notion of research hit a little too hard, a little too early, has a kind of um, an instinctive recoil mm -hmm. um, for some students. And so I think maybe between, uh, between Leanne and myself, it's sort of a nice balance between those students who really sort of... The, the rigor that's sort of built into the notion of research, you know, some students really respond to. Um, and like I said, I think we're doing kind of the same thing. We just sort of couches things differently. Sure, sure, which I think is, is smart to have sort of a broad approach because there's really not just one way to do something. And, and I think often they want to hear about the right way or the one way to do it, um, but it can often 
seem very challenging, you know, to, to kind of fall within that category. I'm curious about the first year experience, um, mm-hmm. and sort of what that looks like. Can you sort of map that out in terms of what that is currently? So we're currently in a bit of a transition. Um, we're trying to make the, uh, the sequence actually a sequence, mm-hmm. uh, whereas before they were classes that you took in any order. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're trying to find ways to make that more uh, more sequence than it has been in the past. But it's basically made up of uh, three primary classes. Uh, those classes are um, uh, AMP in 2D and uh, drawing. And uh, the last one is the 4D, 3D class. Mm-hmm. So those are all sort of combined. We had broken them out into a workshop system for a number of years, mm-hmm. but we're actually trying to sort of maybe do away with the workshop system at this point um, and sort of meld it back into just sort of three classes. Okay. Okay. And so those classes, you're wanting them to be taught in a certain sort of order or or not not taught. I mean, the, they would take them in a particular order. So is, is there one that they would want them yeah, to so we're trying to, yeah, so we're trying to give them the AMP, which is their art methods and practices, and the 2D class uh, right up front, along with the drawing, and then the 4D, 3D class in their second semester mm-hmm. rather than the first semester. Mm-hmm. So that's the that's the sort of preferred way uh, mm-hmm. for the students to, to take them. I mean, if they take them out of order, because again, we ran it unsequentially for a long time. It's, mm-hmm. not, a, it's not an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, but so... The uh, the AMP section, Art Methods and Practices, that's where we really focus on methodology mm-hmm. and on research and on creativity. So again, mm-hmm. teaching them how to be creative. So we spend really half the class um, really focusing on that. And then we spend the other half the class uh, introducing the traditional elements and principles of design. Uh, but again, we're not doing projects about the elements and principles. We're mm-hmm. introducing them in the context of these broader assignments that they can sort of utilize. So they're getting, they're getting the information, but they're mm-hmm. not getting the information um, sort of organized around those elements, principles of design. Okay. And so then are you guys um, introducing them to contemporary artists and things like that as well, or any kind of like readings that you have them do, or do they have a textbook? Uh, they use um, the uh, Launching the Imagination, uh-huh. mostly uh-huh. because it's a really good book, has really great illustrations. The approaches different than either myself or my colleagues so that it's a nice ancillary text mm-hmm. we don't teach from the text we right. assign the text and and the other thing that the main reason why we like it is because we can actually use it we use it for all the sections so it's it is one nice. yeah. it's one text mm-hmm. um that way the students can spend more time more of their money actually buying supplies right. and, and less buying books right yeah and i've i mean it's nice because it does 2d and 3d and color and you don't have to worry about getting a bunch of different textbooks for those um yeah i've i've used it as well and it's it's nice to to have it as a resource for yes, sure absolutely for and, that, sure. and that's and that's the way we use it it's a, it's a resource for the students uh, and it's another way of getting the information that I think makes sense for um, uh, for some of the students because it is laid out so sort of logically and cleanly. Mm-hmm. It's very accessible in that way. And so you've been at Bowling Green State University since teaching there since 1999. Is that right? So almost 20 years. Yep. And your father was a cabinet maker, mm-hmm. you said. And mm-hmm. so how, how do you feel like that impacted you being creative as a child? Because you said you went into school originally in the sciences. So I'm kind of curious how, how that happened. Yeah, I, I, I've always been a kind of creative kid, but the arts were not that stressed in, hmm. in our, at our house. So 
Um, and like I said, I was more of a science kid, mm-hmm. uh, but I read a lot and I had an accident. So I had a lot of downtime in my teens, mm-hmm. uh, which I think more than anything else probably kind of guided the direction of the rest of my life mm-hmm. um, in that I just had a lot of time to read mm-hmm. and to think that it, at a time when maybe thinking is not maybe what a lot of <laughs> <laughs> teenagers, teenagers yeah. spend a lot of time doing. And so it made me, uh, you know, sort of very reflective at a very early age. Mm-hmm. And I became really interested in philosophy and, and science. And so that's why I ended up being a physics major. But I've always been really interested in the way things work. And I've always been interested. I've always actually always been tinkering and pulling things apart. And, um, you know, I used to trash pick, you know, mechanical things. We mm-hmm. made, we made go-karts and, uh, I would, we would actually do podcasts before there were podcasts. <laughs> uh, I trash picked a reel to reel recorder and we would make, uh, we would make radio shows in the basement. I came from a large family. Oh, wow. Um, so. In that way, and of course, we were latchkey kids. So there's five of us. We were latchkey kids. Uh, we kind of ran the neighborhood, and mm-hmm. uh, and so it was really, it was very, it was a very broad and forgiving childhood, uh, not scheduled at all. Mm. Um, so that basically, I think you sort of learned to follow your own sort of impulses and curiosities, mm. but it wasn't creative sort of in the traditional sense of, I never took, I didn't take a single art class in high school because mm. I was taking, they only have so many art classes that you can take. And so right. I, I was taking music at the time. So I didn't really ever get an mm-hmm. opportunity to take any mm-hmm. visual art classes. So then, you know, thinking about your position at your university, do you find yourself tinkering a lot with curriculum and playing around a lot with projects and wanting to take them apart? Oh, absolutely. In fact, you know, it's kind of a joke. I, I, the, I think Bowling Green in general is kind of like that. We are constantly tinkering with the with the curriculum, mm-hmm. almost to the point of it being kind of ridiculous. Like <laughs> it would be nice to like settle it for a little while and actually maybe get let it be for a while, so we can do a little bit better job of assessing maybe what we're doing. Sometimes mm-hmm. I think sometimes we're so busy sort of playing with things and changing things that we don't necessarily um, uh, take the time to assess as clearly as mm. we perhaps could, but. I, the, one of the things I really love about Bowling Green State University is my colleagues are very, very dedicated to teaching. Mm. Um, they're really, they're, they're excellent professionals, but they are absolutely dedicated to teaching too. Mm-hmm. So I think that then that shows in the amount that we time that I think our whole, uh, our whole school, uh, spends sort of rejiggering and, 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 um, uh, and trying to perfect that makes any sense, the, uh, the curriculum. The interesting thing is, is it, ne- it never is. And, you know, mm. you, move, you move one piece over here and things over here sort mm-hmm. of change. But it keeps things pretty exciting. Uh, like, I have been there for 20 years, and I certainly don't feel like I'm sort of stuck in my ways mm. or that I've sort of found, a, a, you know, settled into a comfortable path at all. Right, because I, I, I would imagine that you're doing projects that are not the same that they were, you know, in 1999, and so things are evolving and changing. Sure. And, you know, are, are there ways that you've seen, not, not just the program, but just um, what an 18-year-old looks like now versus first oh, yeah. began teaching? Yeah, sure. In fact, it's funny. I was just talking to some folks about this the other day. It's like the kids are as smart or maybe smarter uh, than they were 20 years ago. Uh, I, that really hasn't changed that much. Mm-hmm. I think the things that have changed is that um, they don't quite 
they are absolutely conscientious, but they don't seem to have the same degree of self-starting, that they need to be handheld just a little bit more. And so I think that that's one thing I noticed. But the big change, the really big change, is that they have no experience in making anything. We are in a disposable culture, and we are in a, a formulaic culture. In other words, almost everything that they do... Uh, oftentimes, um, or the things that they make, uh, very often are on the computer mm-hmm. and they're usually using particular software or, um, uh, uh, online tools and the tools are pretty much dictating what the results are. Right. That basically they're making a logarithmic work where the, the, the logarithms of whatever it is, mm-hmm. whatever tool that they're using is actually largely shaping what that work is going to look like. Um, and so one of the things we try to do is make them aware of that, but just getting their hands dirty is like really, really, really important. And that's, you know, the, in AMP, that's probably the big thing that we stress is this notion of thinking with process when in doubt, do something. Just start playing, just start, start playing. doing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You can't, you know, tapping your, you know, tapping your forehead with your pencil, you know, and trying to, you know, I call it bulldogging where you try to think your way to the solution of the mm-hmm. problem is not very effective. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that for geniuses that works really well, but for the rest of us, <laughs> we have to find ways to discover our genius. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way you do that is through doing stuff. And so, and whenever possible, I tell them to try to do it off the computer. They're so used to the, the other thing is they buy solutions. And when I say mm-hmm. shopping, I, literally shopping, they literally buy them. But they go online and it's like, I will scroll through Pinterest until I find something that I like. And then I will alter it around the edges. And then it's mine. Right. That's shopping for a solution. Uh-huh. They have been conditioned um, mm-hmm. to search and shop for solutions mm-hmm. rather than try to uh, do the hard work mm-hmm. of actually having to sort of produce something or do something. And so that's a big part of what AMP is trying to do is mm-hmm. to deal with those, you know, I think relatively small but important changes in the population or the what, you know, the skills that like they can, they, they got mad search skills. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I have them. You know, if, if I need to find something, it's like you guys you know, find it for me quick because they have they do have uh-huh. mad search skills. Uh-huh. But uh, working on these uh, sort of more hands-on skills, um, looking for off ramps. They aren't used to looking for off ramps. In other words, when you do something, you you have to have a goal, otherwise, you, you're right? You're just gonna yeah. But generally speaking, the real good solution, the sort of genius solution, is not what you had in mind. Mm-hmm. It's usually these other off-ramps. And that's what I tell them is like in every process, you're co- constantly looking for off-ramps. Where are the places that I can exit mm-hmm. and take a kind of a snapshot, either a literal snapshot or a, a, a have some sort of artifact mm-hmm. from that part of the process mm-hmm. that I can come back to? Right. That gives you sort of multiple points of... Uh, access as you move forward to find that solution. Sure. So a big part of what we're doing is trying to capitalize on the assets that they're bringing, you know, the sort of shopping assets they're bringing, and uh, minimize the deficits, which are this idea of that making things. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, like I said, I think they're uh, just as sort of hardworking and just as conscientious. Sure. And and I think that this this age group, and especially at this time, gets such a bad rap sometimes from society or, oh, they're on their computer and they're on their phones and all this bad stuff or they're so selfish or whatever. But I found 
that, that just to be sort of an excuse for not really noticing the good things in, in, in the students. Yeah, I think I, I agree. And actually, I find that they're not selfish at all. I find that they're actually significantly more generous than certainly I remember my generation. Being. And their worldview is so broad. It is. It's, yeah. so, it's so incredibly broad. And, and, it, and it's very embracing. So that's a, that's a real strength. I think, you know, they just have become a little bit because, the, because they're so scheduled mm-hmm. and because there's so much pressure put on them so early mm-hmm. in terms of being successful. They're so failure averse. Those are the only real deficits, you know, that I see. And, and those things really are fairly easy to overcome. Mm-hmm. You know, they really, mm-hmm. I think they just need to, they need to f- feel safe and you need to give them the tools to kind of do these things, um, to take a, a little more agency in uh, how they approach uh, problem solving. Sure, and, and and I think a lot of that has to do with just them being sort of comfortable with this sort of uncomfortable, murky hairiness of making a thing that Absolutely. looks ugly for like a really long time <laughs> before it ever looks resolved or you can even talk about it. And so, so when you have a project, are you more inclined to have them talk about their process like midway before the thing is due? So do you have like a process critique often? Well, we... There's again, we you know we were talking about off ramps in a, in a process with the with the assignment we have off ramps too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so and uh, and so the the um, the field work are the sort of things that go into. So usually there are like four minor projects that go into the project. Okay. Does that make sense? So, sure. So again, these are those those things where we're generating the information that they're going to then utilize to solve the problem. Mm-hmm. And again, we're sort of mod- we're trying to model in the way in which we're structuring the assignments what the kind of activity that we want them to do. Sure. So uh, that's what we do. I'm I'm also curious because you've been teaching and have a lot of experience um, being a maker, but also being a human being um, in terms of higher education and dealing with sort of um, what can often be thought of as a political sort of environment. And, you know, I'm, I'm curious if, if you could go back and talk to yourself in some kind of time machine or time capsule and go back to the Michael of 1999, sure. let's say, um, are, are there tips that you would give yourself as it relates to balancing life and higher education or? Um, sure, sure. That's a good question. Wow. Well, I think first, I, I think I, I have to, you know, acknowledge that maybe I did something right. You know, in other, <laughs> in other words, I, you know, I, I managed to sort of move through the professional stages and some somehow ran the gauntlet and survived it. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, I would probably push back farther hmm. than I would push back if I was going to sort of change anything. I would probably push back to grad school, and I think it has to do with um, because I did come to. I came to art so late that I didn't maybe get, I don't know if I didn't get the best advice or if I wasn't listening to Mm, the best advice, mm -hmm. but, um, I would have, I went, I got my master's degree from the same institution. I Mm -hmm. got my, my uh, bachelor's from uh, Ohio state and a great institution, great people, a really, uh, uh, broad, uh, broad base. But the reality was, my thinking was at the time, because I was accepted to a couple other programs, but they had the best money. Uh-huh. And I was dirt-ass poor. And so I and I thought, you know what? I've only worked with half the... Because I had a huge painting faculty there. Mm-hmm. I've only worked with half the painting faculty. You know, it's really... This is, this is about time, and it's about, you know... And 
I had a great experience. Sure. Great experience. In retrospect, though, what I didn't understand at the time was how much it's about connection. It isn't about, it is a, how much it's about the connections. We'll just leave it there. <laughs> uh, it's about a lot of things and connections are a big part of that. Yeah. And I think that had I understood that at the time, I probably would have made mm-hmm. different, more informed decisions sure. uh, about what I did. Well, like I said, in the end, it sort of worked out. In terms of navigating the rest of the career, one is is like you got to work some someplace where you really like your colleagues, and that's really worked for me at Bowling Green. I really enjoy my colleagues. They're frustrating, as all <laughs> colleagues are, uh, right? But they are good folks, and their hearts in the right place, and you can work with them, and you know, and you can disagree with them, and uh-huh. not end up hating them. And so, uh, I think that's huge. That's huge. I think mm-hmm. so. Finding Finding a place where you feel that you can be who you are and do what you need to do and speak your mind and move forward. I think the other thing, too, is is I I think that I'm not good with intrigues. And I think that being comfortable, finding a place where you can be upfront without being threatening or threatened, I think is really uh, really important. The thing is, is that, you know, we all, we're all passionate about what we do. And from that passion, Mm -hmm. um, can come strong feelings. And as long as you can get your own ego out of the way, Mm -hmm. you know, in terms of thinking that it's my way or the highway, Mm -hmm. uh, or that, you know, I have the best, uh, I have the best plan for what art should look like in the, you know, 21st century then I think it usually works out. So I think that, you know, finding a way, you know, or finding a, a, a place where you can, you know, engage honestly mm-hmm. uh, with your colleagues, if you've got that, you know, you're going to be fine. And if you don't have that or you can't figure out a way to get that, um, it's going to be a uphill slog, I think, for you. Sure. Well, and I, I, I think that some of those things that you mentioned, your colleagues, that's often something we don't have control over, right? You know, I mean, I didn't get to pick all the people that I worked with. They sure didn't get to pick me in the same way. So I guess are, are there... You know, because I, I think about when I went to graduate school and when I started teaching as an adjunct and kind of farming myself all over town, um, you know, I didn't understand the politics of power and, and you know, my place at the table or if I was even at the table, to be sure. honest. Um, and, and so I think that that discussion isn't really had very often and, and sort of some of the conversations that some folks might say to others where it's like, well, just wait for that until you get tenure or don't say anything about that until this or that. Do you agree with that? Do you I really don't. That? I think, I think that, I think that you need to be as upfront as is humanly possible mm-hmm. and make that really, I'll give you an, I had already stopped painting before I was going up for tenure. Mm-hmm. Like I just, I, I was, I'd already switched, but in terms of actually going for tenure, mm-hmm. I still needed activity. Show, sure, I, still, sure. I still needed to show that work right? because I hadn't built the infrastructure right. for the other work successfully yet. Mm-hmm. But I didn't try to hide that fact. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I basically, you know, sort of was very upfront with that fact. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there are, there certainly are political realities. Sure. But I don't think, I think that one can be very honest uh, and earnest uh, without being an asshole. Sure, sure. And, and uh, you know, and I think that ultimately... You're better served if everybody, if everybody kind of knows where everybody else stands, mm-hmm. that seems usually to be a much healthier environment mm-hmm. as opposed to, 
I'll call them intrigues, but certainly, yeah. you know, sort of these suspicious, suspicious kind of, yeah. playing politics, trying to, for, you know, form, form alliances. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think, you know, building constituencies is important and you have to give time to build constituencies. Like mm-hmm. you can't go in and think that you're going to just sort of, you know, shake everything loose and everybody's right. going to fall in line right. behind you. I think that it takes time uh, to build, to build those kind of constituencies uh, where you can get things moving in maybe directions that you would like mm-hmm. to see. And certainly that's why I felt like, especially for first-year instructors, we mm-hmm. basically, everybody's got a piece of us. You know, everybody's invested in a certain way mm-hmm. and they don't care. It's a really weird <laughs> thing, right? It's, they're like totally invested. It's like everyone, it's like, we're not getting what we need. We're not getting what we need. But then, okay, well, let, let's yeah, dig in. We, right. you know, what, what are you willing to do? And of course, the answer is usually, unfortunately, nothing. Nothing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a really weird thing where everybody cares, but nobody wants to sort of dig in and really. And so in that position, I think that l- learning to build constituencies uh-huh. is really, really, really important. Right. And I think also just learning to like yield, you know, <laughs> and to actually not come in hot to a situation and just sort of sniff it out a bit, I think is, is really helpful. Um, and I found that just sort of assuming great things about humans around me helps, you know, that I, I don't assume they're out to get me or, oh, I'm going out for tenure, which I am this year. And it's like, oh, do they think I should get have a hairstyle? Are they judging me? <laughs> do they think this? And it's like, oh, if I spent my whole day, I wouldn't even be able to get out of bed and go to work. Sure. Um, but if I just assume, okay, there, we all care about our students. We all care in the same sort of general sense. So, and if they, if something was really alarming, I would know, you know, those kinds of things, sort of assuming the best, um, maybe that's naive, but Naivete is a is a powerful superpower. <laughs> I'm, I'm dead serious. Like if really? we all sort of understood the perilous waters we were in at any given time, mm. would we would we stick our toe in? I'm not sure. That's so true. I think That's that true. I think honestly, because I, I I do the same thing. I'm a bit. I think the best of people and expect nothing from them. Mm. That has served me fairly well. Um, <laughs> I think my my uh, I think my wife would basically she, she's. She wouldn't necessarily agree with that, but, <laughs> but it, it's one of those things where I think that what I do is, you know, I, again, it gives me that sort of somewhat Pollyannish sort of thing where I can sort uh-huh. of function. Uh-huh. Um, but it also means that I'm sort of, uh, making sure that I am getting done what needs to get done because, or at least sort of keeping an eye on things because, Oftentimes, you know, people have their other, have their own mm-hmm. other agendas and other lives and things don't work out in terms of your project. You can't expect anyone to care about the things that you care about in the same way. Right. And so I think that that's a reality that it's not, it's not expecting the worst from people. Uh-huh. It's simply expecting them to also be looking out for themselves. Yeah. And to be really into what they're doing, sure. you know, and mm-hmm. sometimes that involves laser focus to where they're, they don't know what I'm doing in my class. So why would they be? Well, we're as- all, we're all stretched so thin. Right. Right. You know, right. I mean, it's like, they're doing the same thing. They're scrambling. I mean, that was the, maybe that was the big liberating thing. You know what the big survival thing for me was, is like, everybody else is just as screwed up as I am. <laughs> once you, once you get that realization, you, yeah. you have a tendency to think it's just me. And you look around and you see all this competence yes. around you and you think, Oh my God, I'm a fraud. Uh-huh. They're going to see right through me, <laughs> right? How do I keep this from happening? Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know, somewhere maybe about six or seven years in uh, at Bowling Green, I, I suddenly realized it's like, oh my God, they're all as screwed up as I am. You know, this is not, this is, this is okay. And it makes, um, I think once you, once you come to that realization that we're all 
sort of scrambling wildly to enjoy the things mm-hmm. that we enjoy um, and to meet all of the obligations that we have. Sure. Once you sort of see people's humanity, then it makes it a lot easier to sort of deal with them as colleagues mm-hmm. and uh, and to tolerate each other with uh with joy <laughs> right right well and 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 you know as someone that that for at least 20 years you've been teaching foundations and you've been engaged in that practice along with other things you know how do you stay excited and passionate about foundations when we see so many colleagues you know burn out or just use it as this little i'm gonna i'm gonna play like i care about foundations so i can get the real job in sculpture or the real yeah. job in painting i feel i feel really bad for those individuals who find themselves in a situation where they are biding their time for the good job in foundations. Mm. It is too much work mm-hmm. and it is too important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think for, for, and, and I wish them well in finding that place where they sure. belong. Sure. I am one of those people where that's where I belong. Mm-hmm. I belong, I belong on the front end of this thing. I actually, right now I'm so overjoyed with where I am professionally in terms of I love my engagement with the first year program and I love my engagement with the grads for me they're kind of the same thing mm-hmm. they're they're at you know they're sort of at the beginnings of something really amazing and I think that's where I can have the most impact mm-hmm. and it's where I see the most excitement so for me I wouldn't want to be anyplace else I think I'm trying to build for my students that same experience that I had in that mm-hmm. art for non-art majors class mm-hmm. you know where suddenly I saw that this is the way I can make sense of the world. This is the way. It wasn't about career. It was about this is a way of being in the world that makes the world make sense. And if I can give that to the students, that's my real goal. And so for me, it's not, I wouldn't really be any place else that, you know, first year education is absolutely where I belong because I'm really engaged in trying to make those kinds of experiences happen. Oh, well, that is wonderful. I, I am so glad that you were able to sit down with me today and we were able to talk in person in a hotel business office, whatever this is called, <laughs> where someone was printing. Exactly. <laughs> beep, beep. Beep, beep. But uh, I really enjoyed it and I'm, I'm very great, grateful. So thanks. Well, thanks for talking to me. This has been so much fun. Oh, great. It's, it's so great to, to have these moments where we kind of reflect, you know, Take take a moment to reflect about, you know, why is it that we do this stuff? And then we can just get right back into the rat race. Exactly. Well, thanks. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Positive Space. If you're interested in being part of FATE's ongoing conversation about art foundations, visit the FATE website at foundationsart.org. Don't forget the dash between foundations and art. This episode's interview was conducted by Valerie Powell and was engineered and edited by Raymond Gaddy. Our theme music was provided by Lee Rosevere. If you like what you hear on Positive Space, be sure to give us a review at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever it is you find your podcast. Better yet, send us some audio. You can call Positive Space at 904-990-FATE. That's 904-990-3283. You may find your voice on the next episode of Positive Space.